Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Sharing their expertise and life stories. Making a difference, one word at a time. Now here's your host, Vicki St. Clair. And welcome everybody, welcome, welcome. Well, whether we realize it or not, we're always telling stories at work, at home, at play, to friends, family, and even to ourselves. So who better to join us today on the transformative power of story than 36-time Moth Story Slam and five-time Grand Slam storytelling champion, Matthew Dix. And sticking with story, we'll end today's show with Maxine Rosler, who's been working, uh, whose work has been cited in editions of American uh, short stories and best American essays. Her new novel, Queen for a Day, comprises a series of stories about New York moms struggling for a sense of normality while raising special needs children. But first, Matthew Dix. His new book is called Story Worthy. Engage, teach, persuade, and change your life through the power of storytelling. And uh, very interesting background. Uh, He teaches, he writes, he performs, he co-founded Speak Up with his wife, which is an organization that produces, uh, I'm told, sold-out storytelling performances throughout Connecticut, Massachusetts, and New York each month. And uh, he's joining us today via Skype. Matthew Dix, welcome. Thank you, Vicky. So thank you so much. Pleasure. And I, I was telling you before we came live, I really loved this book. I, I really enjoyed reading it. And I loved looking at what you are doing and how you've created this niche for yourself. And um, I want to just begin, though, Matthew, by talking about uh, moth, since we mentioned you are a champion <laughs> moth storyteller. Uh, I, what, what the moth is, for those who don't know, I listen to it quite regularly, but I know there are people who don't know what it is. Sure. Uh, the Moth is an international storytelling organization. They put uh, people on stages throughout the world. Um, those people tell true stories live without notes. Uh, quite often, it's just people who have never done it before. Occasionally, it's famous people who uh, you know who attract a lot of attention. But they essentially provide a platform for anyone who has a true story that they want to tell to uh, stand in front of an audience and be able to do it. So I I, I don't. You know, I don't work for the moth, but I perform for them regularly, and I'm just really blessed that they are in existence and gave me my start. Yeah, it sounds as though it spun off a whole new uh, career for you in a way. I I read that you just did this because you promised a friend you would. Yeah, I I actually didn't want to do it initially. You know, I I told my friends I would do it. They, they, They suggested I go to New York and tell a story. They thought I'd be good at it, and I had no intention of actually doing it. And eventually they wore me down through shame and embarrassment. I agreed to go to New York and perform. And even when I got there, I, you know, you drop your name in a hat and they have 10 people perform a night. And there's usually at least 20 people, you know, whose name is in the hat. So as soon as I dropped my name in, I sort of prayed that I wouldn't be chosen and I could go home and <laughs> be my pride. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, I mean, fortunately for me, but that night it felt very unfortunate. My name was drawn 10th and I got to take the stage and tell a story. And so what did it feel like? Because you'd had um, a childhood that was uh, that was kind of fraught in a way. And uh, your friends thought you'd be good at storytelling because you'd had all these things happen to you. But so what was it like when you told that first story? Well, I mean, I tell people I hated every moment of it 
until I began speaking into the microphone. I mean, even when they called my name, I, I didn't move. It occurred to me no one knows me here. So if I just sit very quietly and very still, maybe they'll choose another name. But my terrible wife was with me that night, so she kicked me in the shin and told me to get up <laughs> on the stage. Uh, as soon as I started speaking into the microphone, I immediately fell at ease, and I loved what I was doing. And I won my first slam, and I'm a highly competitive person, so the competitive element certainly um, helped me quite a bit in the beginning, knowing that I was going there, and I'd, it, I would be able to know if I was good or not. I really liked that idea of sort of having a score. The same way when I was a kid, I played video games all the time, and I loved the idea of knowing whether I had won or not. I, I loved that aspect of storytelling as well. Right, right. You also said it made you a hit with the ladies. Of course, you have a lovely wife now, but but this was your your way into getting into the the, the female world. Well, it's true. When I was a kid, you know, I wasn't like the I wasn't the most handsome guy. I wasn't the most charismatic. But what I discovered was that if I just stood next to girls long enough and told stories, typically funny stories about terrible things that I had done and embarrassments that I had suffered it caused women to laugh. And if I got girls to laugh, eventually they might turn in my direction. I, you know, I say that I was, I'm love's version of erosion. I would just sort of wear <laughs> them down. But it worked. Uh, my wife was asked once why she first fell in love with me. And I didn't know the answer. I was just happy to be there when she was answering the question. And she said it was through storytelling. She said that, you know, we were friends first. And I got to know you through the stories you told. And she said, I discovered you're different than anyone I'd ever met. And I liked listening to you. So storytelling got me the best spouse there ever was. And it, I know that people take storytelling workshops from me for dating, and it, and it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, let's talk about your, your workshops for a second, because you say you're always shocked by the range of people who come to your workshops. You, you get grandparents who can't get their grandkids to listen to them, um, salespeople, teachers, professors, all kinds of people. Yeah, it's really astounding. I mean, just this this spring, I was in Canada on a, Mohawk reservation teaching Native Americans how to tell stories and that's and, and every every it seems like every couple months someone calls me who I would never expect to call me and suddenly understanding that storytelling is important and I think what people quickly discover is that they're telling stories all the time and unfortunately they're probably not doing a great job of it I think there's a lot of storytelling in the world but I don't think there's a lot of good storytelling in the world and so as people start to hear really well-crafted, well-told stories, they start to realize maybe I can do that. And I believe that. I believe anyone can tell a great story. Right. I do come from a long line in my family of storytellers. People love to tell stories. But there's a difference, you say, between a story and a romp. I wonder if you'd share that with I think that's a good place for us to begin on what makes a good story. Yeah. I mean, I think the mistake people make is they think of stories as stuff happened to me, and I'm going to tell you what the stuff was. And that's not really a story. The classic example is a vacation story. Someone says, let me tell you about my vacation. It turns out no one's actually wanted to hear the next sentence of that story. Like, no one cares about your vacation. Um, what a story really is, it's a moment in our lives. I, it's a moment of transformation or realization. I call them five-second moments because I think that's about how long it takes to either come to some new realization or to change in some fundamental way. And so I, I often just look for moments in my life when I feel something deeply, when my heart moves, when I suddenly discover something new about the world or new about myself or where I change in some way. I make a, a vital decision that I could have never made on my own um, prior to it. So I find these moments and those are the things that become stories for me. Yeah. 
So while we're talking about, you know, most people think a vacation story is a, is a story and it's not necessarily so. You share a story in an essay that you wrote about a vacation you were taking with uh, your family. You were floating in an inner tube in a park with your five-year-old son. And he said, Dad, I wish I could stay five forever. I don't think there's anything better than five. And you yeah. say, you want to know about my vacation? That's the story I'll tell because it changed me. Tell us how it changed you. Uh, well, I mean, it changed me in a million ways, really. But, uh, you know, I, I'll i never forget that moment, the way he the way he described that. His understanding about the value of childhood and how he told me how important it is to recognize him as a five-year-old and how limited this time is. I have 365 days of Charlie as a five-year-old. And if I waste one of them, I'm a fool. And floating around with him and understanding the preciousness of this time with him you know, I, I, I understood it to a degree, but it wasn't until he said those words to me that I really understood how fleeting this time I have with him is. And so that was it. That was, um, I don't know what else happened on that vacation, to be honest with you, but that's the moment I remember. <laughs> it's, the only, it's the only one I want to remember. You know, I really don't need to remember the meal and I don't need to remember all the other things. It's that moment that I'll never forget. Yeah, and it sounds very intimate. Uh, just one of those special moments that you can't recapture. So uh, it's, it's a great story. Um, and- you talk- and they happen all the time, though. I always tell people, like, those moments that I had, that moment I had with Charlie, I have them all the time because I've become attuned in, to seeing them. So, you know, people often tell me they don't have stories, and I, I just tell them, yes, you do. You just didn't see it. You, you have to yes. open your eyes. And the other thing, uh, Matthew, because I struggled with this as a writer when I first began, um, I always thought my story had to be a big story. And it doesn't. <laughs> it, has, it can be like the tiniest, smallest thing. So talk to us about that, if you would. Those are my favorite stories, to be entirely honest with you. My friends told me to go to The Moth originally because, I mean, I haven't had a terrible life, but it's been really odd. Twice my heart has stopped beating and I've stopped breathing and paramedics have brought me back to life. Uh, I was arrested and tried for a crime I didn't commit. I was homeless for a period in my life. And truly, that is the tip of the iceberg of nonsense that I have suffered in my life. But the stories that I love the best are the tiny moments, like the one with Charlie and the inner tube. Because if I tell you the story about the time I was in a car accident and died on the side of the road, I really can't connect with people on a, on a car accident level. Like no one's really going to feel, you know, they're not going to connect with me and think, yes, I once died on the side of the road too, Matt. I feel your pain. Right. But I think we can all understand what it's like to feel that time is fleeting and what it's like if you're a parent to have a child suddenly growing up on you and you wanting to slow that process down if you could and, and to understand the preciousness of, of, you know, youth. All of those things, I think, connect to people so much easier. So I'd much rather tell a small story that people will understand better than these large stories. Right. One of the examples you shared in the book, you're very open, um, and I want to talk about that uh, later on, but uh, one of the stories you share uh, was when uh, your wife had a miscarriage Um, And then you had all these people coming up after the show who could definitely relate to you. Right. I mean, the craziest thing I tell people that's happened to me in storytelling is four times in my life, I've shared something deeply personal on stage. I've stepped off the stage and a woman has come up and told me about her miscarriage. And in each of those cases, I was the one and only person she had ever told. And I, I just thought it was crazy the first time it happened. But I called my wife right away who had had a miscarriage. And she told me it makes total sense. She said, you were vulnerable on stage. You made yourself open. You opened your heart to people. And then she pointed out the other important thing is they didn't have to see me tomorrow. 
like sometimes we have a secret that we're burdened with that we'd really like to speak out loud. But, you know, if I was working in a cubicle with that woman, the next day you got to see me again. And that sometimes makes it a little harder. Right. So I was, I was a vulnerable, open person that they could sort of share with and then move on, you know, ships in the night. Right. But people, I am the bearer of more secrets than you could ever imagine just by simply sharing my life with people and then having them open their hearts to me. Mm. Does that ever get to you? The what people share with me? What people share with you. Do you do you take that on board or or can you compartmentalize it if you will? I, I can pretty much compartmentalize it. I guess the only time it gets too much is I've stepped off stages and had sort of six people lingering and waiting to talk to me. And sometimes all six of them have something deeply personal to share. And when it, when they start to pile up like that, then it starts to become a weight. Whereas if one or two people want to share something with me, especially if they're sharing it in a way that it's making them feel better about their lives, that's, that's fine with me. But sometimes it, it just, it gets to be much, uh, you know, and I don't blame them and I understand why they're doing it. But, uh, You'd be surprised at how often I have a line of people waiting to talk to me and each one needs to tell me something deeply personal. Right. And since you do so much storytelling and you're exposed to this a lot, um, how do you then decompress when you get when you do get to that state, which it isn't very often, you said, but when you do get to that state, what do you do to decompress? You know, the beauty of storytelling for me is after I'm done telling a story and performing, I often have a drive home. You know, I'm in New York or Boston or somewhere around the country, and I have I have like an hour or two in a car or a plane or, or somehow I'm going to have to travel home. And oftentimes that's when I really have an opportunity to I play some music. I think about what the people said. I try to focus on the positive of each one of those moments. And, and that sort of gets me through it. Um, I, I always consider it an honor when someone's willing to share something with me, as mm -hmm. difficult as it might be to hear. And I just remind myself that they trusted me and that in trusting me, they're probably a little better off being able to share that thing. And so I remind myself that way as well. Right, right. So we're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, you talked about uh, it only takes five seconds to uh, every story takes only five seconds. So I want to dive a little deeper into that. And we'll look at um, why Jurassic Park wasn't a movie about dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> well, my guest is Matthew Dix, and his new book is Storyworthy. Engage, teach, persuade, and change your life through the power of storytelling. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Please stay with us. Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website, pdf.org, or call us at 800-457-6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. Knowing your breasts can save your life. Go to knowyourgirls.org for the facts you need on breast health. Brought to you by Susan G. Coleman and the Ad Council. At Sundown Communications, we find that most of our clients are brilliant at what they do, but they lack the time and resources to write and create business messaging that delivers results. That's where we come in, providing a diverse range of professional copywriting services for fresh strategic web content, PR, advertising and promotion, marketing, speeches, and much more. 
Call us today so you can focus on what you do best, and we'll do the rest. Call 800-495-7617. That's 800-495-7617. Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, Michael Fenster, MD, a.k.a. The Food Shaman, shares what we need to know about the connection between the gut and the brain. Cindy Warren, author of Radiate, How to Cultivate Your Inner Shine, and best-selling food writer Julia Tertian on the importance of food and community. Tune in Mondays at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. More at conversationslive.net. Thanks for listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Listen to podcasts of past shows at conversationslive.net. Seattle, Tacoma, Antwerp. That's right. We're streamed worldwide on our app and on the web at 1150kknw.com. And welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. Well, that's Brandy Carlisle. Uh, I just love her voice. You have to listen to that and play as loud as your ears can possibly bear it. <laughs> it's awesome. But we're talking in this segment with Matthew Dix, and I love this book too. It's called Story Worthy. Matthew Dix, of course, is a best-selling novelist, 36-time month Story Slam champion, and five-time Grand Slam champion. And um, his work's all about story, all about story. So uh, you'd mentioned that it takes only five seconds to tell a story. We don't have to be looking for that big, big story and it doesn't have to go on forever. Um, so one of the things you do throughout the book is give movies as ex- and other books as examples. And you use the Jurassic Park as an example through that throughout the book. You say it wasn't a movie about dinosaurs at all. So talk to us about how that fits into your five seconds rule there. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I love that movie the best as an example because people think about that movie and they just assume it's dinosaurs. And if you watch it carefully, the first one, what you'll discover, it's actually a movie about a man and a woman who can't really be together, sort of as husband and wife, you know, completely, because the woman wants to have children and the man doesn't. And as that's what opens the movie. You see that actual dynamic take place. And then lo and behold, what happens, the man who doesn't want to have children ends up in Jurassic Park keeping two children alive. And as you watch the movie, you just see this man get closer and closer to these children until finally he's actually physically holding them in his arms and he's fallen in love with them. It's a story about, you know, love. It's a story about people who coming together and finding, you know, finding a a space with children where they can, you know, be together. And Steven Spielberg, what he does is he puts dinosaurs into the movie because if I asked you, do you want to go see a movie about a guy who can't be with the woman he loves because he doesn't fundamentally love children, but by the end of the movie he will, that doesn't sound very entertaining. So, you know, he puts a real story around dinosaurs and you end up leaving that movie feeling really good, feeling like that's that was a really nice movie. And you might not not even be able to articulate why, but it's because there's real emotion in that story. And so all stories, I think, sort of are like that. We're looking for little moments, even if I'm going to tell a big story about, you know, the time I died or the other time I died. These stories really can't be about death because we're never going to connect on that level but i got to find a little moment within these bigger stories that will mean something to people that will cause them to laugh and cry and everything in between right right this is where so many um companies organizations fall down on what they call story that you know the big buzzword story story we have to have a story but they think it's all about them and it's not it's about connecting with their end user or their listener their reader their viewer whatever 
and um, that emotion is missing in, in many of those, those cases. Um, you talked earlier about vulnerability, and um, it's very hard for some people to be that open and that vulnerable. Um, so why do you share so much of yourself? Uh, you know, I was asked that question in Brazil a couple of years ago. I was speaking to about 700 high school kids in an auditorium, and no one had ever asked me that question before. But a boy said, you know, you write a blog every single day, and you write novels, and articles and you stand on stages and share your life. Why do you do it? And I stood there and I said, you know, I think I'm trying to get the attention of a mother who never paid attention to me and then passed away and a father who left when I was seven and never came home. And, you know, and then I said to them, I think I'm having one of those five second moments right now. Let's, let's take a moment and think about this. I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, the, the other part of it is I've discovered that if I'm open and vulnerable and I share my life, it's a, it really is a sign of strength. I think that people often mistake vulnerability as weakness. When if I'm willing to share something really private, an embarrassment, a humiliation, it really is a show of strength. It's a show of willingness to, to be oneself. And I, get, I think I get a lot of uh, credit for it. And I think uh, people really appreciate it. And that's what allows me to connect to people. But I think ultimately, it's true that I'm trying to get my parents to pay attention to me, even though one has passed away and the other one isn't coming back. Right, right. Uh, yeah, it makes sense. And also, you say you're a big fan of Anne Lamott's uh, or a big believer in the words of Anne Lamott when she says <laughs> she's very well known for this. You own everything that happened to you. Tell your stories. If people wanted you to write warmly about them, they should have behaved better. <laughs> I love that so much. It's, I mean, it's so true. You know, I just think we hide from our truth so often or we keep it bottled up. And what people are dying for in the world is authenticity and vulnerability. It is so easy to find um, bravado today and, and bragging and, you know, shows of strength and, you know, displays of aggression. And we really nobody's interested in that. It's not it's not compelling in any way. It's not connective you got to find something that's really deeply meaningful. And that's what's going to bring you closer to people and get people to open their hearts and listen to you. Yes. Yeah. Um, I want to share a, a story that um, this towards the back of the book. I want to talk about language and the words that we use because you say how important it is. And I remember watching Jerry Seinfeld and he said he does not like using profanity in his comedy work. And yet, you know, look where he is, top of the top of the game, right? Right. Um, and, and you said you feel the same. And thank goodness you um, felt that way and, and choose your words carefully because, as you said, you blog every day. And you had a situation where somebody took a whole bunch of your words out totally out of context and it caused a great deal of grief. I wonder if you'd share that story briefly with us. Sure. I, I, I had been blogging essentially for more than 10 years at that point. And I'm an elementary school teacher as well. And for whatever reason, someone decided they didn't want me to be a teacher anymore. Um, someone, a disgruntled parent or a disgruntled colleague. And so they took 10 years worth of blog posts and really took them out of context. I mean, one of the best examples is uh, they accused my principal at the time of favoritism. And I had written uh, the, in the packet that they created where they took things out of context, they wrote the lines, um, Matt said, the principal said, I can do whatever I want. I have total control. You know, I can come and go as I please. And they didn't mention that that was the day my mother died. 
And so on the day my mother died, my principal said, you can do whatever you want, come and go as you please, take as much time as you need. They had left that part out, that my mother had passed away on that day. And so they did that again and again and again, over and over. But I mean, I got lucky for a lot of reasons. I mean, the First Amendment's a beautiful thing, and that protected me. But all of the blog posts that I had written, you're right, I, I, I'm not profane. I rarely swear even on stage. And I hadn't identified any of my fellow teachers in any derogatory way. I hadn't even really mentioned them by name. I'm just very careful about what I say. I mean, most pe most of my friends would say that's a crazy statement because I often walk right up to the line and say things that most people wouldn't say. But when it comes to other people, when it comes to the words that I use, I've just always been very careful and it served me very, very well. Yeah, and I think it's important to share that because we talked about how open and vulnerable you make yourself. But but also in today's society, uh, we see every day where people's lives and careers are ruined by people taking things out of context that have gone up on Twitter or Facebook, wherever. Um, so I think it's important. Yeah, uh, just choosing wisely and pausing. You know, I, I, rarely, I post all the time on Twitter and Facebook and places like that, but I always take a moment to think about what have I just said? How will it be received? Is the context there? Those types of questions I ask myself constantly. And, and it's, it really, it saved me. It saved my teaching career. It, it's, um, it's, it's very, very important that you choose your words carefully. Yeah. So I want to talk uh, about the fact that you say anyone can be a storyteller because it's like you hear people say, oh, I'm just not creative or, oh, I just can't tell stories. But you say anybody can uh, if they use some of the tips in your book. Yeah. No, I, I think it's absolutely true. Uh, the one advantage I have in terms of teaching storytelling is I've been teaching elementary school, fifth grade, for 20 years now. And so I really believe in taking large concepts and breaking them into small, uh, repeatable parts that are easy to practice, which is what my book does. And so I've taken this large sort of umbrella concept of storytelling and really broken it down into sort of the most important part and then the next most important part. It's a real pathway to, to creating a story, to crafting a story. And I do believe there's some art and craft and performance that goes along with it, but I have yet to meet a person who I can't hand these strategies to and allow them to become a highly effective storyteller, someone who could go to the moth and win a story slam, which many, many, many of my students have done. Right, right. Uh, if, we, if listeners can hear a little child in the background, I, your kids are in the <laughs> bathtub, right? <laughs> Yes, both of my kids are in the bathtub right now, and apparently they're having a really good time now. They're having fun. We like to, we like to hear that. <laughs> um, so ideas, ideas, ideas. Uh, since you're, um, you're so busy telling stories all the time, I, I know you have a method for collecting ideas. You use a, a spreadsheet. Um, tell us about how that works for you. Sure. I call it homework for life. It's essentially a homework assignment I gave to myself, and now I give it to every person who comes through my workshop. I simply sit down at the end of every evening and ask myself, what is the most story-worthy moment from my day? What is the moment that made this day different than every other day? Even if the moment that I stumble upon is boring and not worthy of a story, whatever it is, I write it down. And I use a spreadsheet because, again, I believe in small, repeatable tasks. And so I don't want people to think that they have to write down a story every day. Instead, I write down a few sentences that capture a moment from my day. And over the course of time, in doing that, what I've discovered is that I've developed this lens for storytelling, where I see stories that other people don't see, like that moment with Charlie in the, you know, in the tube, in the water. I think even if someone sees that moment, what happens is you see it, you take it in for a moment, and then you let it go. 
uh, we are, we're sort of the sum of our experiences. That's who we are as human beings. Our memories are incredibly valuable, and I just think that we throw them away like trash. I think we we don't take a moment to record them and reflect upon them. And then if you craft them into a story, you own it forever. It becomes crystallized in your mind and something you can share with the world. And so I do this every single day. And the people who do it along with me, and now there's thousands of people who, who do homework with for uh, homework for life along with me, they have achieved the same results. They see stories where most of us don't. Right, right. Uh, one of the biggest mistakes people make uh, in telling stories is not editing, you say. And, uh, you know, anyone who uh, makes a living as a writer knows that editing is critical. <laughs> yes. What you take out is as important as what you leave in. And it's the same with yes. storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we have to because we can't say everything because nobody will ever want to hear everything. And so it's simply a matter of deciding what the moment is that I want to share. You know, if it's a moment with Charlie in an inner tube, that's the moment I need to head towards. That's my destination. And the story is just going to bring that moment to the greatest clarity possible. So I only choose to put in the moments that serve that final, you know, that final end piece, that final five second moment. So anything in my story that doesn't serve that final five-second moment comes out of the story, which is really hard for some people because they sort of want to tell everything. It's hard to edit your life and, and say that something important to you isn't worth the story, but oftentimes it's not worth the story. Right, right. So creatively, is there what, what, what is the biggest thing that you struggle with creatively? Oh, well, I guess that's the thing that I struggle with the most is I can just add a lot of things to stories to be funny. You know, I, I just, I like to be funny. I like to make people laugh. So it's very easy for me in a story to sort of launch off on a tangent that I know everyone will find extremely amusing, but really doesn't serve my story. And so I have to really rein myself in, in terms of humor. I, I tell people, I don't want to tell funny stories. I want to tell strategically funny stories. So if I'm going to have humor in my story, it's for a purpose. And it's not simply to make Matt look funny but to service the story in some significant way. Right, to move it forward, make it memorable. Yeah, or, or important things like if, if we have a really sad or a really difficult moment in a story that was hard for people to hear, oftentimes a laugh right after that moment is, is the opportunity for an audience to take a breath, you know, to, like, to come back to neutral so that we can move the story on. So I'm always thinking about emotionally, where do I want my audience to be? Right. Well, we're right at the end of our segment, Matthew. Such a pleasure talking with you. I could talk with you for a long time on this uh, subject. Um, the, the book is great. It's called Story Worthy. Engage, teach, persuade, and change your life through the power of storytelling. And Matthew, of course, a novelist, teacher, a moth champion, <laughs> and great storyteller. What would you like to leave our listeners with today? Oh, you know what? Well, I'll tell you, if they want to learn more about storytelling, my wife and I have just launched a podcast called Speak Up Storytelling where we actually play a story and then critique the story. And so I think that storytelling is sort of an ongoing process that you have to keep engaging in. So I tell people to listen to stories, to open up a, a space for people to tell stories by encouraging people wherever you are to tell a story. And then if they want to check out our podcast, it's an opportunity to hear sort of a professional critique of an excellent story each week. So whatever they're going to do, just keep telling stories and opening up spaces for others to speak and engage in the craft in a sort of a consistent basis. I think that would be really helpful for people. Okay, well, I will be checking out that podcast. And what's the name of the podcast again? It's Speak Up Storytelling. And I know listeners can find out more about Matthew at matthewdix.com, matthewdix.com. Matthew, thanks so much for being with us. Really appreciate thank it. You. Thank you, Vicki. I really appreciate it.
And please stay with us. Uh, We're going to take a quick break and we will be right back with Queen for a Day. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, Michael Fenster, MD, a.k.a. the Food Shaman, shares what we need to know about the connection between the gut and the brain. Cindy Warren, author of Radiate, How to Cultivate Your Inner Shine, and best-selling food writer Julia Tertian on the importance of food and community. Tune in Mondays at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. More at conversationslive.net. Let's see if I, I guess that, (sighs) this just isn't working. Knowing you have a great idea for a book is one thing, writing it, another. So what's stopping you? Maybe you can't find time. Maybe you don't know where to begin. Maybe you wrote a couple of chapters, then disappeared down a rabbit hole. Or maybe you'd rather someone else write it for you. Partnering with the right coach or ghostwriter can make all the difference between talking about your book and finishing your book. As an award-winning writer and strategic consultant, Vicki St. Clair's storytelling credits span from business, health, self-help, and memoir to New York Times and USA Today best-selling anthologies. Vicki partners with people just like you at the exact level you need. Whether you need a little encouragement, editorial guidance, or full-blown ghostwriting and consulting services. If you're serious about telling the story you know is inside you, stop procrastinating. Let's get your story down on paper. Contact Vicki today. Email Vicki at VickiStClair.com or call 1-800-495-7617. See more about Vicki and her work at VickiStClair.com. Did you know that capsizing boats and people falling overboard account for over 70% of boating fatalities? 80% of those fatalities occur on boats under 26 feet and on boats with operators who've had no formal boating instruction. 50% of all boating accidents involve alcohol. Be smart this summer. Know who you're boating with. Wear a Coast Guard approved life jacket and don't drink and boat. This message is brought to you by supporters of Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair and the JMB Group, who wish you safe boating fun. Do you love wildlife? Then make a real difference by helping PAWS care for sick and injured wild animals. Volunteers help feed and clean the animals until they are well enough to return to the wild. Sign up today and help save a wildlife. No experience necessary. All training is provided. Visit PAWS.org or call 425 787-2500. Thanks for listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Join us live every Monday at noon on Alternative Talk 1150 or stream live from conversationslive.net. Tell your friends about Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And my guest in this segment is Maxine Rosala, Her fiction and nonfiction has been published in the Southern Review, Glimmer Train, Witness, and a bunch of other publications. She's the recipient of a New York Foundation for the Arts Fellowship for Fiction, and her stories have been cited in editions of the Best American Short Stories and Best American Essays. And we're talking today about her new novel, It's Queen for a Day. It's a novel in stories. Maxine Rosala, welcome. Hi. Very pleased to have you here. And um, 
I want to just start out with a little bit of your background because you've been writing for quite a while, it seems. What made you want to get into, uh, or have you always written? Oh, yes. I've, I've been writing. I'd say that I've always wanted to be a writer, and I didn't. It seems it seems like not so um, young, but I start. I didn't really actually start writing until I was um, 32, which was a long time ago, 35 years ago, um, and that's when I started writing fiction. But I've always been writing one one way or another. And so, and, um, hmm. go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So I really, you know, I I don't know what it is. It's just like it took me a long time to to have the nerve just to start doing it, and then. As soon as I started writing fiction, I know this sounds kind of corny, and I never really expressed it this way before, but I actually found myself. I think before that, I think I was just, <laughs> like, crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I... Not exactly crazy, but, you know, lost, and, and just somehow it just gave me myself. Well, that's a blessing to find what you were born to do. I, I remember many years ago, I was at film school, and we had to go down and film these people at this festival that was going on. And I whined and complained about it all week. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And when I, when I got down there, I was like, oh, my God, I was born to do this. <laughs> I yeah, no, like, it is. It is I loved it. Thing. But, you know, you know, but the funny thing with me is, is that I always knew I wanted to do this. When I was in the third grade, I wrote a novel. Um, but... This sounds really stupid. My parents guessed the ending of it. And I don't know, could that have traumatized me? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, and, then, and then my mother, my parents, of course, always wanted me to have a job. So I remember telling my mother when I was 21 or 22 that I wasn't going to look for a job. I was going to, um, you know, write. And she actually, like in a, you know, like, 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 an, uh, like, 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 a, like, a, like the quintessential Jewish mother actually fell on the floor. <laughs> I mean, it was bizarre. Well, you all survived, so that's okay. And here we have a new novel. It's called Queen for a Day. So let's take a look at this because it's a little different. It's a novel in stories. Explain what that means to our listeners. Well, uh, you know, I think it's kind of like a phony kind of title. Um, but basically, um, what I did was I wrote a collection of short stories, and they were all thematically connected. And then what I did was I actually went back to the stories and I just went and connected them further thematically and then create, you know, had the characters appear and reappear in different stories. And so that's why it's called a novel in stories. Right. Um, but it really was originally a collection of short stories, of right. interconnected short stories. And it basically is is stories of women who are struggling to find some sense of normality in their lives. They're raising special needs children. Um, you you took the title from the 1950s reality TV show, uh, which I don't know what that was called. Was that Queen for a Day? It was called Queen for that a Day. That was called yeah. for Queen for a Day. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. tell us how you how the concept for this came together. Well, first of all, um, which I, I am—I do have a son with autism, so you know it wasn't very difficult for me to come up with a concept. Um, and and when I had time to go back to writing, um, I had been writing a novel. I really finished the first draft of a novel, and it just didn't—none of that seemed relevant to me anymore. So I went back. I decided to go back and write about this experience, and I approached it from many different angles. At first I wrote a memoir, 
and that was just awful. And then I wrote a children's book in the voice of an autistic um, kid. And I don't think that ever works, really, actually, um, writing in the voice of an autistic person. I never read anything. I, I don't know that it works. Um, I, but, I had one guest who wrote it, but he he had a, an autistic daughter and a lot of feedback from her. So that's the only one I've come across. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. I I know different people have different. The, autism is such a huge spectrum. It is. But I don't. I, and every now and then, my son will son will come up with something. But anyway, that's off topic. So just. So in the, in the beginning of the book, and I'm not giving it away because it's right here on the first page, we, we learn very quickly that, the, um, that the, uh, the protagonist in the story, Mimi Slavitt uh, and her husband Jake, are totally in denial about the fact that their son Danny has autism. Um, is that something that you experienced yourself or did you recognize oh, from an early sure, age? for sure, for um, sure. I think that, I actually think that I think that I'm still in denial. How old is your son? I think that I don't think that that anyone can really quite absorb something like this. How old is your son, Maxine? He's 26. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, and my life is devoted toward, you know, for, to working for him and 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 full of hope and always working. But there always has to be an element that you have to sort of like hold it at bay, you know. Of, of of awareness, I think, and for sure that I would say that the, that the book is very much me, very much me. Although the incidents and the characters are fictionalized, right? So tell us how the the stories came together. Then, um, so you'd written this series of stories, and then basically go back and create this novel from them. But um, what what did you hope to accomplish in writing the story? Well, I'd say that, you know, there was, there, first of all, when I write, I always write, um, you know, I write to entertain myself and my, you know, invisible readers. Um, so certainly that's a major goal. And then I certainly have themes that I like to, um, to work on. You know, it's funny, I was listening to the guy before you talking, and people, writers, lots of times when they talk about writing, they seem to know what they're doing. Um, and I can't really say that I, I think you only really know what you're doing in retrospect because I think most artists work from instinct yeah and Matthew um, does too uh, I know from reading his book that he never knows the ending to his story unlike uh, other writers who might who, say they who, always who, who is that you just said who, who Ma- you, Matthew who? Dix who I just talked oh, who with just, yeah, yeah yeah so um yeah well a lot of it's you know from instinct yeah and so I just um you know, a lot of the stories were basically framed by my own experience, but then my imagination would take hold of it. And then often to, um, for me to deal with anything, I always have to sort of, um, you know, anything really serious. I always like to get very serious, but also very funny and absurd. So I go from one extreme to another, and that's how I entertain myself and hopefully entertain my readers. Um, and so that's what I did in this book, and I certainly wanted to tell the story um, of my experience and the experience of other mothers with children with disabilities. Right, right. Well, and I take... think it's, you know, it's, it's interesting and fun, and also one thing I really wanted to do in the book, when, again, a lot of this is in retrospect, um, it's funny, you know, you think about literary analysis and stuff, you know, and you see all the stuff that, you know, people say the writer did, and, and I, I hear my husband talking about my work, 
And I say, wow, I really did that? Gee, I sound smart. You know, I didn't know I was that smart. <laughs> but really, seriously. But, um, you know, I really hate the books that, that make the women mothers seem like saints and make it seem like it's just so great um, having a child with a disability and that everything's fine and you just accept the child because that's not the way it is. And so and that's certainly not my perspective. Yeah. And so I, I did feel like I, um, in retrospect, again, wanted to accomplish something different in this novel. And again, write just the way I always write, which is I always seek to achieve a certain level of truth. Right, right. Well, and, Maxine, uh, we need to take a break, so I'm going to interrupt okay. <laughs> you there. And um, Marion Thurm, of the, uh, she's the author of Today Is Not Your Day, which was an editor's New York Times book review choice, uh, says that this novel in stories is sharply observant, deeply poignant, yet at times so darkly humorous that the reader will laugh out loud. It's unlike anything she's read before. And my guest is Maxine Rosala, and her new book is called Queen for a Day. We will be right back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to New Pro Supplements, we cover the world of animals. This week, August 12th, it's a Helen Sunday. That means our very favorite National Geographic explorer and best-selling author Helen Thayer joins me in the studio. She'll update us on her return to Death Valley with her new dog, delight us with more of her incredible adventure stories, and answer all of our questions. On Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. Hi, this is Vicki St. Clair. If you have a business, service, or event and would like to deliver your message to a large audience, call me at 425-269-4772. Let Conversations Live shine the spotlight on you. Call 425-269-4772. Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, Michael Fenster, MD, a.k.a. The Food Shaman, shares what we need to know about the connection between the gut and the brain. Cindy Warren, author of Radiate, How to Cultivate Your Inner Shine, and best-selling food writer Julia Tertian on the importance of food and community. Tune in Mondays at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. More at conversationslive.net. Thanks for listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Follow me on Twitter at Vicki St. Clair. No other station delivers this much variety. Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. You are listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Where did you find music for Queen for a Day, Eric? <laughs> Donna Summer. Oh, of course, Donna Summer. <laughs> My guest is Maxine Rosala. And as, again, her book is called Queen for a Day. And um, it's a novel in stories. And um, I want to ask you, uh, Maxine, because you said that you don't, you don't really plan, you don't know where you're heading with your story um, how do your characters come to you? Do you base these on people that you know, or do they just oh. come to you as well? Oh, I definitely base them on people I know. I would say all the main characters are based on characters I know, but then I 
But then I change them into other characters, and then the side characters that appear are all my own invention. And so do you run into people who say, was I that character in that book? <laughs> well, I'm a little terrified of that, to tell you the truth. <laughs> Especially now you've declared it. <laughs> yes. Can't very well deny it now. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I, yeah, I can always deny it. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Um, is there uh, in the writing process? Is there something that challenges you more than more than other things? Like so with some writers, it's dialogue. With some, it's it's uh, you know getting a good sense of setting. Um, this is set in New York, so I mean we feel that we're in New York. What's what's your challenge? I don't think I have any challenge per se. General challenge. I just say that every now and then, I will just run against a wall and. Who knows when that wall is going to, you know, emerge. But, but I don't think I have – there's nothing I really have a challenge with in terms of the general writing process, I wouldn't say. And so what, but, ha- um, what happens but, when you, you – know, But I've certainly – it's not like I don't get blocked sometimes. I sure do, and that's hell. Yeah. And so what, what turns that around for you? Well, you know, I re- you know what it really turns it around is sometimes I will read a writer that I love. John Cheever, I love John Cheever, and mm. Connor O'Connor, and I'll just read them over and over again, and I'll just sort of get myself into an, almost a meditative state where I can just somehow access my unconscious mind, and that, that's the only trick I've, I really have. And swimming sometimes helps, too. Oh, swimming's a, a great pastime because you, it's very meditative, isn't it? Oh, it's great, yeah, and sometimes I'll just give myself an assignment before I dive into the pool, and then by the, when I'm out of the pool, I remember I came up with something. Mm-hmm. Are you working on something new now? Oh, yes, I was working actually on a thriller when um, I was so rudely interrupted by Joe Olsham <laughs> accepting my book, really. Um, so now I'm, you know, really, how dare he? So to interrupt the creative process. Um, so now I'm sort of trying to return to it, but there's so much publicity involved in a book and and it has to be done well let's talk about that publicity because this is something that you know i i talk with hundreds of people and in my work not just as a host but as a writer and producer and strategist um and people talk all the time about i have i have a book i want to write but it's the distribution and the publicity that is the challenge and so um have you what what do you find challenging in that if anything well, it's not exactly challenging. I mean, I have a lot of fun. I have a publicist, but, and I have been having a lot of fun doing these interviews. In fact, it's interesting because it's sort of like getting let out of a cage because I've really been living in a cave for so long. <laughs> um, so it's kind of fun, and that's why I'm such a blabbermouth, I think. Um, but, well, among other reasons. But um, <laughs> it's really, right now I'm worried, like, am I going to get a New York review? Because who the hell knows? Like, why, why, do, why does the book get reviewed, or why not, you know? And oh, so well, that's again, that, that's, again, that's all publicity. It's hard work, legwork. Your publicist, Deb Zip, is actually one of my favorite people to work with. She's oh, I love, so I professional. Love her. Yeah, she's so professional. But that, that, I think a lot of she's people... She's so real. She's a real person. Yes, and I think a lot of people don't understand how much work goes into, you know, getting your platform as an author and publicizing and building your brand as an author. There's a tremendous amount of work there that goes into it. So um, is this your first novel? I know you've written fiction, but is this the first novel? No, I have actually three other novels that I've written, and I didn't really think that this book was going to be published because it was originally a collection of short stories. So um, I wasn't even going to send it out. 
Um, but this was the one that was chosen. I have two other completed novels and one that I had to throw away and then one that I'm in the process of writing. So I guess when I'm dead, I'll be famous or something. <laughs> well, we, we hope that uh, happens before that. Um, so what would you like to uh, let our listeners know about the book? We haven't talked very much about the book, but it, it, we talked a little in the beginning about the book, about the characters in it and how it kind of weaves together. What do you want them to know about the book? Well, I want them to know that it's, you know that it that it goes it, it it's a very emotionally driven book um and it goes to the depths of sorrow and also it, it it has a lot there's a lot of joy and a lot of absurdity in it so i'd like to say that there's you know a big range of emotion and then of course it does tell the true story of um what it's like to have a child with a disability and it's not about that it's not about disability it's about about character and about dealing with with tragedy of of tremendous proportions and how different people deal with that. I don't like thinking of myself as a mother of a child with a disability. I don't like thinking of my son as a person with a disability. I just think of I, I but I but but that that I guess is I want people to realize that that we're right. all human. Right. Right. And you put a human face on it and uh, Appreciate you being with us today to talk about it. Sounds as though you're having a lot of fun with it. And the book is called Queen for a Day. And my guest, Maxine Rosala. I see. I managed to say your name right all the way through. Yeah, I know. You didn't. You didn't. You didn't miss a beat. All right. Well, Maxine, thanks. I think it was that holler that. That's a very good tip. Thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Okay, it's a pleasure talking to you, Vicky. Thank you. Take care. And uh, you've been listening to Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. If you have questions or feedback on today's show, we always love to hear from you. And um, Matthew Dix was my first guest with Storyworthy. Great book. And my second guest, Maxine Rosala, Queen for a Day, uh, a novel in stories. You can find out more about us at conversationslive.net. You can follow me on Twitter at Vicky St. Clair. We're also on Facebook at Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. And that's it for us today. We'll see you next week. And uh, until then, live well, live strong. Next week on Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair, Michael Fenster, MD, a.k.a. The Food Shaman, shares what we need to know about the connection between the gut and the brain. Cindy Warren, author of Radiate, How to Cultivate Your Inner Shine, and best-selling food writer Julia Tertian on the importance of food and community. Tune in Mondays at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. More at conversationslive.net. Hi, this is Vicki St. Clair. If you have a business, service, or event and would like to deliver your message to a large audience, call me at 425-269-4772. Let Conversations Live shine the spotlight on you. Call 425-269-4772.